This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunen here, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today, my guest is an old friend of mine, Sasha Hines. Before we get to our high school years, let me tell you a little bit about our partners at Hourglass Cosmetics. Putting on a face full of makeup isn't among my highest priorities, but when I do need to polish up, I try to use makeup that meets a high standard. Hourglass Cosmetics was founded in 2004 as an innovative cosmetic brand committed to being 100% cruelty-free. They operate from a place of integrity to this day. Hourglass also has a handful of clean products, which our team was excited to stock in the Goop shop, including an ultra-precise brow pencil that has gotten some major airtime at the office water cooler. You can find select Hourglass products on Goop or head to their site at hourglasscosmetics.com goop. When there, use code goop for free expedited shipping on your order. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Sasha Hines is a PhD and a life coach. She helps people push past their mental blocks and take action towards their goals. Today, Sasha is sharing her own story on breaking through self-sabotaging behavior and finally feeling unstuck. Sasha tells us where to start by believing change is possible and how with practice we have the power to blow our own minds with what we're really capable of. Often the only thing stopping us from getting what we want is ourselves. Sasha teaches us how to shift our perspective to a place of action and accountability, and she reminds us that our thoughts are optional. How do we actually get people to not just 
learn, not just to have, you know, knowledge about something, but actually apply it to transform their life. Because I will say unequivocally, the problem is not a knowledge gap. Almost everybody knows what they should be doing. The problem is always a mindset gap. Okay, let's get to my chat with Sasha Hines. Well, thanks. I haven't seen you in, what, 15 years? Oh, yeah, maybe even more than that. It's bananas like to be. <laughs> I know. I was thinking about that this morning. I still feel 18. I do too. I think I have like my age stopped at maybe like 25. Yeah. But then I saw some serious gray hair going on this morning and I think I need to actually for the first time get a single process hair dye, mm-hmm. which is, I, I feel like that's like a threshold. Yeah. I was thinking that I just went for a haircut yesterday and I, when it gets longer, like the curly gray ones really come out. <laughs> yes, the wiry look. gray ones, it's yeah. so attractive, yeah. Exactly. So for people who are listening, Sasha and I actually went to boarding school together. So I met you when I was a baby, 15 mm-hmm. probably. Yeah. So I think like you to me are a fascinating example of someone who has it all, right? Like you're gorgeous. And in high school too, gorgeous, athletic, smart, went to Harvard. Married happily, we've just determined. And yet, you talk about how you felt incomplete or empty, or I don't want to put words into your mouth, but as a living embodiment of kind of a version of perfection. Yeah. What happened? I felt so much pressure to be like that. And um, oh my gosh, I think around like 17, I hopped on the hot mess express and then didn't really get off until after college, but it was... That was not perceptible, just so you know. (laughs) (laughs) It started to be a little bit at the end of high school. I feel like I was wearing lots of black and was like quite morose, but um, no, I I really hit it because I mean, I was an internalizer. Now Mm -hmm. I know what these terms are, but I had a terrible eating disorder starting in boarding school. Um, And I now, like we talk about self-care, people like bat around the term self-care. But what I always tell my clients is self-care is treating yourself like the supportive, nurturing parent that you wish you had had. And it's not that I adore my parents and I'm super close with them, but they didn't know how to take care. They don't know how to take care of themselves all that well emotionally. Mm -hmm. So I just didn't learn to do any of that stuff. So I felt like my entire 20s was growing up, like actually having to grow up and learn how to take care of my just being functional as a human being, but also taking care of myself emotionally. Yeah. And did you feel too that because you embodied, I'm sure you were aware of this, but I feel like you were, so Sasha was one year ahead of me in high school, just to orient everyone, (laughs) but she was sort of the ultimate cool girl self-possessed, 100% full all-around success story. So did you feel, too, that by carrying that, that you had to present as that? Totally. Um, I, like, I had no room to be messed up. Like, right. I had no room to not um, – like, I felt like I had no room to not succeed. And, and also, at the time, like, my – My brothers were going through some, you know, stuff too. So I felt like in the family, like Mm -hmm. as I was oriented in the family and the middle child. So I felt like it's so much I was sort of carrying the family banner, so to speak. But yeah, I felt like I I had no room 
to mess up. And I think that women, more than, more than men, will take that and internalize it. So you see, like, women will have eating disorders, mm-hmm. you know, anorexia or bulimia. And for me, it started as anorexia and then went into bulimia, um, which is a terrible addiction. And it's just as destructive as alcoholism or drug addiction. And I mean, I didn't get better until I ended up getting into a 12-step program, which Mm. was life-saving. Like I have such reverence for the 12 steps. Amazing. I didn't know that. I knew, I remember being surprised at the revelation that you had an eating disorder, but also surprised that I was surprised because in my experience at St. Paul's, I mean, I'd say 80% of my closest friends had disordered eating Yes, to sometimes a very extreme degree. Yeah. And it seemed to be incredibly contagious. I feel like at times I had contact disordered eating. So I was like, wait, I'm not supposed to eat two bagels with cinnamon sugar on them. (laughs) Like we would hit that. It was the age of like snack wall cookies and froyo. And I would hit that machine so hard. Mm -hmm. And I just remember that sort of like, oh, shit, I'm not supposed to eat plates of pasta. Well, first of all, like the reason I brought the whole self-care thing is because here we are in boarding school. We have no, you know, the, the a dorm head is like in loco parentis. No, no one is actually paying attention to what we're doing. Right. And so you're going to dinner and then ordering Chinese food like an hour later or whatever to study. So it wasn't like, there was not a healthy environment in that regard. Right. And, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I was... I was, you know, I had had, I felt a lot of pressure in my family. And then also, you know, I'm pretty open about it with people, but, you know, it's also like hashtag me too with a teacher before I'd gone to St. Paul's. So I really started to fall apart at St. Paul's, but I didn't tell anybody because it wasn't, you know, I wasn't allowed to. I didn't feel like I was allowed to. No, totally. And I think that that can also be the provenance of people who have everything, right? Like, how dare you claim pain when you have financial resources, you have beauty, you have intelligence, you're not allowed to have trauma. Not at all. And I think that, you know, I mean, I've gone through so much with all of this, but it's so confusing to like a young person to have someone take advantage of you and not know what to do about it, right? It's very, very confusing. And I had nowhere to go with it. I didn't. And so I, I didn't say, you know, tell anyone until I was I think it was midway or towards the end of college, but it was like a full on, you know, internal just spiral out of control of just not, not being able to really take care of myself Mm -hmm. and also not being able to reach out for help. Yeah. Do you find in your work and and maybe in your personal life, because I feel like so many of us had early sexual trauma that it is a, like almost glacial in the way that it impacts your life. Yes. And that that has been my experience where it, it's like decades and then you sort of start to trace it back and realize like you don't feel the impact. What is that? Do you know? I mean, I think that there's there's like mechanisms in the in the body, right, that we also sort of shut down and mm-hmm. and so I don't think you address that early, but I I think it's mostly just you just you're like, I'm just shoving this down. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm going to just pretend like it didn't happen and everything's going to be fine. And then it's like the, it's like the yarn or whatever, the fabric starts to unravel on the fringes and then it sort of begins to snowball out. Right. So once things started to not go as well and then I was having more trouble. And then of course, like my identity of being the person who like had it all together and, 
you know, was hashtag crushing it. Like that wasn't (laughs) happening. So then that really, everything kind of really started to fall apart. Yeah. So I know you did a PhD in developmental psychology at Mm -hmm. Columbia. You have a master's in applied positive psychology. What is that? And like, how did you, what was your path to sort of getting into cognitive behavioral coaching? Yeah. Well, so when I got out of college, I actually ended up hiring a coach for all of these reasons. And I just loved the modality. I had been an athlete, as you said, and I just loved this idea of trying to understand the why, like why all of this happened. And, and again, I mean, I, it took me years to actually be able to really dig into all of this. So I, I, in my early twenties, I just wasn't emotionally, it wasn't emotionally available to me, but digging, protect yourself from the pain. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, we'll talk about the mind in a minute. Yeah. I mean, honestly, this is how it happened. I went to go see a therapist about my eating disorder. And in like a few, you know, maybe 10 sessions in at one point, I was like, well, you know, like this happened to me. I mean, it's like no big deal. And my therapist <laughs> was like, mm, fairly certain that that is the reason why you now have an eating disorder. And now I know the correlation is very high. Very, very high. Women who have been sexually assaulted, molested, abused, like any of that stuff, there is a very high internalizing rate. So it's it's not it's not unusual for someone who has a severe you know eating disorder for there to been they've had some sexual trauma. Right. No, I'm sure. It's yeah. And a way of exercising control. Right. Yeah. So that was the, that was the beginning of it all. And then I went to a bunch of therapists, but at that point, I just needed to live a healthy day. Like I just needed to have a day where I wasn't actively self-sabotaging. I wasn't actively bulimic. So I, when I would go to these therapists, they're like, let's talk about why you think that happened. I'm like, I don't – it doesn't right, – right now, I don't know that that matters. Like I just need to be able to function and like right. finish with – you know, finish my work and be a functioning human being. So I started working with this coach who had written a book called My Name is Caroline, and she had had long-term recovery from bulimia and was now a life coach, was like, what is a life coach? This is like 2002 or something. So it was all very new. Anyhow, so I, 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 on the dust jacket cover, she had an email address, and so I emailed her and said, you know, like, I'm, I'm, I'm desperate. You know, I'm really, like, I'm really don't, I've tried everything, nothing's working. I don't know what to do. I can't help myself. And it's that awful, I mean, anyone who's been through this understands, like, every day you wake up and you're like, today I'm not going to not gonna do it. And then, you know, at the end of the day, you're like, well, <laughs> here it. I am again, right? Yeah. So, like, anyone who's had any kind of addiction understands that horrible cycle. So, anyhow, I, I contacted her and I started working with her. And she was just, like, gave me such a clear roadmap of, like, this is what you're going to do. And having someone take control and take the reins and was like, okay, right now you are not capable of making these decisions. Here's what you're going to do. And I just we, – we had one rule when we first started working together. And I said, I'll never lie to you. Mm. That was it. She was like, just do what I tell you to do. And at that point, I was willing to, like, let go of my white-knuckling it and let go of my will because I was like – what I'm doing is clearly not working. So I started working with her and months into working with her, I just decided this is what I want to do with my life. I mean, it took me some time to get there, but 
I was, I'm, I don't, I'm an odd specimen because I wanted to be a life coach when I was like 23 years old. <laughs> but you had a lot of life behind you. Yeah. I mean, in a funny way, I mean, I, I, I feel lucky that I kind of hit such, like I hit the skids like so early on that I feel actually so lucky because I didn't, you know, it didn't take me that long to kind of like course correct. Yeah. I had my entire twenties to like get it together and I feel really lucky about that. So what do you think is the distinction between sort of practicing as a psychologist or psychiatrist and then being a life coach? Is it that you want to make take a more active role in terms of helping people figure out what's blocking them or holding them? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it really started because at that time I was – interested in self-development and all of that. And then Martin Seligman, who had been head of the APA, the American Psychological Association, he started the field of positive psychology. And it was just to really address this imbalance in the field where the vast majority of research and all the research dollars, frankly, were going into, you know, disease, disorder, dysfunction. We've come a long way in being able to treat people with significant personality disorders and depression and anxiety. So it's been very worth it, but his... I mean, kind of. We, we have. Okay. We have. Like, if, if you were getting treated <laughs> in the 50s, like you're that's getting true. lobotomized okay. with, you know... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> fair. That's fair. Your temple's burned off. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, you're like... Your grandmother goes and gets, like, treated in air quotes, you know. <laughs> Is like shipped away for a couple months. So that's true. That's we've made, true. We've made strides. No, I mean the brain is a, bit, it's a black box. So right. it, there's there's a lot to uncover. But um, he this whole idea that you know the traditional you know the traditional goal of psychotherapy is not necessarily happiness. It's right. not being ill. So I loved this idea that there was something more than just being kind of baseline okay. Like I'm okay. But there was something more than that. There was like you could actually cultivate happiness or cultivate greater well-being or optimal human functioning. Like that really was exciting to me. And I just got lucky that he started a master's program when he did. And I was working in New York and I just on a whim applied. So you worked with directly with Martin Seligman? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I worked directly with Martin Seligman and that year was – ridiculous. I look back on what we had. And after, you know, I went to get my PhD at Columbia and you're lucky if you were taught by one or two sort of very prominent professors over the entire course of my time at Columbia. I had in my master's program at Penn, we had, I mean, it was like, you name it, the greatest hits of positive psych. It was like Jonathan Haidt, Sonia Lumirsky, Mike Cheek sent me high, Chris Peterson, Ed Diener, Barry Schwartz, you, like, and on and on, Barbara Fredrickson, all of these guys, because they were so excited to teach master's students this material, because there was not a single master's program in the world that had it yet that was teaching this. So I had the best academic year of my life. I mean, it was like, my, I mean, it was just mind blowing. And the, I, at that point, I never wanted to go back to school. And after that, I went to go get my PhD. So it changed everything for me. What are – can you sort of explain the tenets of positive psychology? Mm -hmm. So positive psychology is not – I think it's really important that it's not like differentiated from the, you know, larger 
field, the field at large, because I think we love to like separate ourselves, but it's not, that's not really the case. But what positive psychologists do is they, they study the causes and consequences of happiness. We study resilience, character strengths and virtues, and just in general, positive psychological adaptation. So anyone who's like adapting well to life, we're interested in how do you mm-hmm. do that? What's fascinated with people who are have exceptional talent or, you know, have like achieved great things? Like what is it about them and the way that they think and do things that allows them to perform at such a high level? And do they have qualities, I guess, that we can all adopt? Exactly. So it's like re- reverse engineering that and, and how can – but it sounds a little ho-hum now, but, you know, it, this is only 20 years old. But 15 years ago, like – Understanding any of the correlates of happiness was really new. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And actually, like all of this work up to this point had been relegated to the self-help aisles. Right. You know, there wasn't any. There was very little research. There was any, you know, very little rigorous kind of experimentation being done. Like none, none of that really existed. And so, how do you take that and then apply it to the way that you coach? So I think my interests professionally and in terms of research, I think have shifted a bit because after getting my degree in positive psychology, I had like, you know, I knew more than pretty much the entire planet of what makes people happy. And then I went to Columbia and it was, it it was developmental. It wasn't positive psychology. I just wasn't as like, I lost a little of my mojo, you know, <laughs> like I got there and I was like, oh, this is what we call business as usual psychology. And it's just not as, in, for me, what I love to study, it just wasn't as fun. So the I wasn't as intrinsically motivated. And I felt like, I, here I was, like I got to, you know, got getting my PhD and then all of a sudden I felt like, you know, it's like you're just like stepping in the mud and I'm like, everything felt so hard. And a lot of that kind of, that feeling of being in Groundhog's Day and like not keeping promises to yourself and that started coming back. I'm like, hold on a second here. Like I know more than anyone about like what to do and I am not able to apply it. Like this is bananas. Right. This makes no sense. So in, we call this the neurotic paradox and I was fully stuck in this neurotic paradox, which is I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. Right. right. This is a perennial problem. This is an ancient problem. And so towards the end of my time at Columbia, I just got really fascinated with, like, we, what is the mechanism of behavioral change? Like, how do we actually get people to not just learn, not just have, you know, knowledge about something, but actually apply it to transform their life? Because I'm – will say unequivocally, the problem is not a knowledge gap. Almost everybody knows what they should be doing. The problem is always a mindset gap. Right. No, it's true. Always. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space, 
or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. We'll get back to Sasha Hines in just a second. Barely There Makeup is a staple of our beauty editors, Jean Godfrey-June and Megan O'Neill. They wrote a story this fall, The Prettiest No Makeup Makeup, in partnership with Hourglass Cosmetics. It outlines six steps to a polished, understated look that requires minimal effort and minimal skill, which is ideal for me. Hourglass Cosmetics makes a few clean products which are featured in the story, like their microsculpting brow pencil, a translucent setting powder, and a clear lip treatment oil for a little bit of a glossy sheen. But what makes Hourglass Cosmetics a notable brand is the stance that they've taken on cruelty-free beauty. In 2004, founder Carissa Jane saw a gap in the beauty market, and she became committed to reinventing luxury cosmetics while seeing eye-to-eye with animals. And because of that, Hourglass works at an interesting intersection of science, beauty, and luxury. Also, for our vegan listeners, aside from being totally cruelty-free, Hourglass is on a mission to make all of their products 100% vegan in 2020, so they are currently in the process of reformulating non-vegan products to exclude animal-derived ingredients, like beeswax and carmine. FYI, if you're looking at the Goop Beauty story, all of those Hourglass products are vegan-approved. And if you head to their site at hourglasscosmetics.com goop and enter code goop, you'll get free expedited shipping on your order. It's that time of the year again. We're celebrating one of our favorite holidays on Saturday, November 16th. It's called InGoop Health. And for the first time, we'll be up north around San Francisco. If you're not familiar with InGoop Health, it's our Super Bowl version of a wellness summit. Gwyneth and I will be hosting a series of talks and panels with incredible thought leaders, and there are many more extraordinary practitioners, teachers, and culture changers leading classes and workshops. We'll be covering a lot of ground, physically and metaphorically. We'll learn about intimacy, the power of connection, fasting, tools for reducing stress, and how to quiet our inner critics. We'll be joined by some of the people I admire most, like psychotherapist and psychological astrologer Jennifer Freed and psychiatrist Will Sue are teaching a joint workshop on manifesting your authentic self. Wall Street legend Sally Krawcheck will be leading a masterclass on money. Judy White is teaching a workshop on what dreams really mean. Walter Longo is giving us his longevity secrets. And you'll get to bounce on a mini trampoline with Lauren Roxborough, which is coincidentally my favorite pastime. And because it's Goop, you can also expect B12 shots galore, amazing food and drinks, and some surprises along the way. If you've been to an InGoop Health before, I hope you'll be back. And if this is your first time, I can't wait to meet you. The summit is on Saturday, November 16th, and you can get tickets now at goop.com slash in goop health. Back to my chat with Sasha Hines. So, okay. So take us through like what, what, how can we be happier? What is the mindset? Yeah. So I, the, what I use with my, I mean, so I use a tool, um, that's basically derived from Aaron, you know, Albert Ellis and Aaron Beck, um, the, the OGs of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and the, the basic premise is there are facts 
of our life, like our reality, the circumstances and events, and they're neutral, we give the meaning with our thoughts. So everything is neutral until you have a thought about it. The thought then triggers an emotion, the emotion creates um, action, and the action creates an, out- like an outcome for us. So I have a client who wanted to work with me about her relationship with her husband, and she was giving me this story. And I love this because it's such an, it's such like a Monday, it's such a silly moment, but it's one that I think everyone can relate to. And she was upset because she'd been to a cocktail party and her husband had got at the bar, went and got her a glass of Chardonnay. And when she got it, she's like, I, but I hate Chardonnay. And we've been married for, you know, 15 years. And how does he not know that I don't like I hate Chardonnay too. <laughs> I, know, I actually do too. <laughs> I'm like, I hear you, sister. You know, so she's like all bent out of shape. And he, But what she was making it mean was like, he doesn't care about me. He doesn't see me. I'm not important to him. And she felt really hurt. The emotion she felt was sad, right? So she has, the, the fact is, Husband brings glass of Chardonnay, right? It triggers a thought. He, my husband doesn't care about me. He doesn't love me, right? And then the thought creates an emotion, which is sadness. And when she's feeling sad, what does she do? Like, what's the act? What is the the actions that are motivated by sadness? Well, she got defensive. Like she she got defense. You know, sort of like preemptive act. She's like, I'm going to be passive aggressive with you because instead of feeling sad right? I'm going to defend myself. Mm -hmm. So she marches over to the bar and like gets herself a Sauvignon Blanc (laughs) (laughs) and giving him all sorts of edge, you know, (laughs) like, and then the outcome was they had tension that night, right? Right. Like they got into a little bit of a fight. So when I was asking her, I'm like, what's the outcome you want? Like, that's the opposite of what she wanted, right? right? The outcome. I'm like, do you, what's the outcome you want? Do you want him to know what kind of wine you like, or do you want to have a loving relationship? And Obviously, Are the two it's not the mutually exclusive. <laughs> By the way, right? Yes, but it's so yes, much nicer and. to have that conversation when you're calm, right? Yeah, and in a good mood. So then, you know, right at that moment when she, her thought was, she couldn't think of it no other way. Right. Like, yeah, but him bringing me a glass of wine that I didn't want meant is like that's me. It's a fact that he doesn't care about me. You know, the first step is just using that tool just to have – it's a mindfulness tool, really. It's just to help you pause and look at where – like, what's the cascade of effects that are happening from this thought that I'm thinking, mm-hmm. right? So the thought then, you know, you see this cascade and you're like, mm, the outcome is no bueno. Like, right. I do not want to get into a fight with my husband. So, you know, when I asked her, I said, well, like, what if it's possible – that it was really sweet of him to just get you a glass of wine. And it, it I mean, for her, it was so, like, this moment was so great because she had that, like, lightning strike of, oh, my God, that thought was totally opaque to me. I couldn't even see it. Right. Right? She, like, couldn't even see that at all. But you could easily interpret that situation so differently. Right. Right? So, so and, and of course, like, that's so sweet. Or, oh, it's no big deal. I don't like Sauvignon Blanc. I don't like Chardonnay. I'll go get myself a glass of wine. Like, you could do that with all, without all the edge, right? Right. So, and then have a better outcome. So, always with my clients, I'm like, what's the outcome you actually want? So, it's like taking that cognitive behavioral model and starting with the outcome first. So, it's really thinking on purpose to create the outcome you want first as opposed to, you know, just reacting to life. All of us are so many of us are run by our emotions, right? That's like just the primary way that we operate. So, can you habituate 
being more thoughtful and like taking a minute or how do you break that cycle? Yeah. It takes practice, like it, but it absolutely yes. The answer is yes because what happens is all of your emotions are your all of your actions come out of your emotions, right? So there's like what we call the, the thought action repertoire. So the thought and there's the, the mediator is the emotion, and a thought then like that cascade creates an action, but you can you can kind of like intercept it, right? You could intercept that place. You can pause in that moment. Like there is a moment where someone's like really angry and you can have that moment of like, hold on a second, like what am I doing here? It's totally possible to do that. You just have to get better at it and train yourself to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So in between sexes, do are men more – because I think we're all probably equally reactive in our own ways, but like are men more predisposed to certain – emotions and women to others like is the the female reaction do we both rise to anger and frustration at the same rate or women tend to like stuff it <laughs> um yeah i'm sure there are gender differences i mean for sure there are gender differences in terms of rumination women ruminate way more than men do interesting as a general rule and I think it's well anyway, but it, uh, yeah. So men don't don't ruminate as much as women do, and men are probably more likely to externalize their problems. Women more, are more likely to internalize them. But in general, it's the same. Like it is the same. The way that your brain works, this process, this cognitive process, is the same no matter what. It's like it doesn't matter whether it's some silly moment at a cocktail party, or it's I'm scared to go. Uh, I'm scared to public speak, or. Um, right you know, whatever. Like it doesn't matter what the situation that you're in, the same cognitive process is occurring. And look, all models are wrong. Some models are useful. This is a very useful model in my opinion. But I mean, I think there's some very interesting stuff happening in psychology in the somatic world where yeah. you're ap approaching things from the body first. So you're kind of addressing things, action. You're addressing your emotions from the model flipped up upside down. So from action to emotion, which I think if you have any trauma, I think it's a really interesting totally agree. path to explore. Yeah. Because I think our bodies pack it all in. It's all there. Oh, yeah. When, by the way, that's what's coming out when you're freaking out about something really silly, right? right. It's never about that. It's about the it's about what you've made it mean in the context of what's happened to yeah. you in the past. So you can almost think about it as sort of somatic therapy is the way to explore and unearth and heal what's happened to you in the past. And cognitive behavioral therapy is like a better way to be in the present. I think so. I mean, and I, I, I think that there's a real place for each different, you know, modality. But what I love about cognitive behavioral therapy and coaching in this way is you're really addressing a person's thoughts in the moment because in some level, like it doesn't matter where it, the biography of that belief and to some extent mm -hmm. in the moment doesn't really matter. It yeah. matters like what I'm thinking currently. What am I thinking currently that's creating my current right. reality? And I would imagine it could theoretically sort of buy you time and space to get a little bit more of a grip so that you can have that time and space to go back and do some of the deeper healing work. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Because I think once you begin to see, you'll begin – when. so my clients are – I'm making them do these models. Like this is their practice. I'm like you're not going to learn to speak – 
Italian without actually having to practice it. I know everyone thinks they can change their mindset without having to practice it, but you can't. It doesn't happen like that. Right. Um, that's not how it works. So you have to practice it. And the more you practice it, the better you get at catching yourself, right? You like you can catch yourself in the act. You're like, oh, I see that pattern. There I go again with, by the way, like you follow the thread far enough. It's some not enough thought. Mm-hmm. Totally. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not a good enough mom. My husband doesn't love me enough. My husband doesn't love me enough because I'm not lovable he, enough. Because he doesn't care about my wine. Right. Because <laughs> he doesn't care about what I drink. <laughs> so can, can you – so positive psychology, because we were talking about this before and I think it is pertinent. So positive psychology is not the same as positive thinking. No. No, not at all. <laughs> like, no. Um, no, I think it's really important to not be overly optimistic about at least like about optimism because there's some really interesting research that that shows, um, in fact, her name is Joanne Wood. She did a study that, that was published in Psych Science, which or Psychological Science, which is one of our sort of most you know prestigious psychological journals in 2009. On positive affirmations and what she and there's so little research actually on positive affirmations, which I think is really interesting since there are thousands of self-help books about positive affirmations. But what she found was the people that benefited from the positive affirmations were the people that had already had high self-esteem, and the people that had low self low baseline self-esteem felt worse. Mm. Not only did they feel worse. But they also reported having lower self-esteem, by the way, by a third-party rater, so not them self-reporting. So this gap, it, it increased the delta between those who the, – the high self-esteem the high self people got higher and the low self-esteem people got lower. And I, I think this is incredibly important to understand this if you're someone who's been repeating mantras and you feel like it's not working – you know, if you have a lot of negative self-beliefs and you have a lot of negative rumination, that's not going to work. Right. It's not, it's not going to work. It's too far away. Like the belief in this, in this study, the belief that they were repeating was, I am a lovable person because your beliefs about your lovability is, is central to your self-esteem. And it was so unbelievable to them mm. that, right, so it just made them feel lower. Interesting. But those who do believe it and theoretically don't really need the mantra just felt like hugging themselves even more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no. And so it's – so yeah, exactly. The point being that, you know, po affirmations, positive affirmations, they do work. Yeah. They just don't necessarily work for the people who might need it the most. Right. So you have to explore that. You have to like heal those subconscious beliefs. Yes. Before you – can manifest anything. Right. I mean, not, I mean, I think that what it means is you need a professional to be guiding you through this process because you can change your mindset. I wouldn't do this work if I didn't think you can change your mindset. Like, I think you can radically change your mindset and where your thoughts go, your life will follow mm -hmm. 100%. So, but it's not going to happen from I'm like full of self-loathing and I hate myself and I'm unworthy to like I'm a lovable person. Like that is a bridge too far. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is – you can't cross it. So, you know, having if, – if 
you know, forgive the metaphor because it's, it's extremely reductive, but if your brain, if you're thinking about your brain as like an operating system, so you're an operating system like an Apple IIe of like OS 1, and that's like I'm a piece of, you know, whatever crap. Right. I'm really in that, like in the throes of self-loathing, which by the way, like I have been there. I know exactly what that feels like when you just hate yourself. Mm. That's, you're in OS 1. To get to OS 10 in one move is illogical, right? So I'm sure someone's had like a flat. I, mean, I know there are people that have had those flashes of insight, but it's very rare. You know, the way that you have to think about it, like you're systematically updating the software, right? Mm -hmm. You're systematically upgrading the software one thought at a time. So if you, you know, like I was giving a talk in, in New York at a an investment firm and someone at the end of the talk was like, well, what if I just, what if you just suck as a trader? And, and I was like, <laughs> okay, so let's walk through this. If you think you suck as a trader, like that's really, you, you may as well hang it up because the person who's really great, like is a great trader and is making a lot of money trading, definitely doesn't have the thought that they suck at it. Right. Right. So you have that, that mindset's not going to get you there. It's not going to get you to that outcome that you want. So the first step, right, this like little shift, the little incremental upgrade might be, it's possible to get better mm -hmm. at this. You got to start with, could you even believe it's possible to change? Right. Right. Like you've got to start with these smaller thoughts first, right, before you can get take this massive leap there. So it's a process of, of getting there. But the power of slightly less negative thoughts, more neutral thoughts is, I think, incredible. So in your own life, as you started working with this coach and changing your own thinking, is that like, what did that bridge look like in terms of the way that you were approaching your bulimia and mm -hmm. self-hatred? Did it go from, oh, maybe I'm not like, I, I suck to I maybe only suck sometimes. Yeah. Like, is that how it... Right. I mean, well, I think the first thought, if I'm looking back, kind of deconstructing it, the first thought was like, it's possible to get help. Mm -hmm. That was the first thought that I had. Right. It's and, and I think I borrowed this woman's belief in me. Mm. Right. I was like, if she believes in me, maybe I can do this. So, but if you can, I mean, those thoughts are not... Stuart Smalley. Right. They're not super positive. They're just like a tiny little land grab. Like it's maybe, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do this is better than like you are worthless. Like this is, it's not, you know, you'll never be normal again, which is how I was thinking. Right. Right. So every little bit of the way, there was like a little land grab. And then because of the way that our brain works in that cascade of effects, Every time I would have shift in my thinking, my life would then come along with me, right? So then I would then act in ways that would give me better results. So I would be willing to show up at a 12-step meeting. I would be willing to get a sponsor. And then from there, I was like, then it just starts. And then you get to momentum, right? You start to get momentum. And then you look back three years and you're like, wow, I don't even identify as someone with an eating disorder anymore. Like, that's so crazy. It seems like it's just like a Nautilus, right? Like, you're just like trying to ratchet, ratchet a day and yep. then a week and then yeah. it just builds from there. Yeah. So do you still need to work a program or are you? 
I don't work a program anymore. Um, I did for many years in my in my twenties, um, and I just I mean I have a very active spiritual life, which I think in some ways the twelve steps gave me, but. I do mindset work all the time because you can, I mean, any, any change I want to make in my life, it's like every behavioral change is an expression of a mindset change. So when you, how do you do that? So like when you observe yourself behaving or reacting in a way that's like out of alignment with the outcome that you want, Mm -hmm. is that, do you just stop yourself there and trace it back? Well, it depends on, right, like what there's... Many things I could be working on at once. I'm like, it's a grab bag of like, what do I want to work on today? Um, no, but I mean, I think like what's not working, right? There, there are things that worked for me in the past and now at this stage of my life, I'm like not working anymore, right? So then you have to – so, I mean, one thing I'm doing now, which is, again, it's like doesn't – it's silly, but it was just to prove to myself like it's what I can do with my mind. But I've never been a runner ever. I've never even considered myself a long distance Didn't person. Didn't you? Weren't you a runner at St. Paul's? No. Uh-uh. Field hockey? I, yeah. And, I would okay. always like be, I was like the captain who would hide in the woods and pretend like she'd done the three mile run. I was like, <laughs> oh, that was so hard. <laughs> who knew? <laughs> no, I hated running and I never, and I always thought I wasn't very good at it. I'm not a fast runner, and I can't run for very long distances, Or right? That's what I thought. So I set this goal to do a long ultra run and a trail run because the road running sounds boring, painful to me. Yeah. So trail running sounds really sounds interesting. So I made the, that goal, and I mean, I'm not kidding you. Like the first – when I started, my, my brain would be exploding for the first – half a mile. Like it hurts. I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. I just want to get off the treadmill. Like I couldn't, my brain was so locked into the, just whining about it. And this morning I did two miles and I was thinking to myself, I was like, by the way, I'm laughing like two miles. Your audience is going to be like, seriously, woman. But it's such a huge thing for me. And I got off this morning and I thought like, I just did two miles and I was watching on the treadmill and I was watching a show and I didn't have one minute of whinging in my mind. Yeah. I just did it. It's like remarkable, right? I, but now two miles is like, oh, I got that. What's next, right? I can do four miles. I can, right? I can, it's like I'm mm-hmm. inching my way there. So I do things on purpose in my life to like, I'll pick something where I'm like, okay, I have a totally fixed mindset about this that I suck at this. Yeah. And then I will try to go after it to prove to myself, like, it's that I can change. Like, I am totally capable of change. And once you get to this stage of it, right, it's super exciting. Because then it's just about – it's not about achieving, which is what I, like, you know, that was my my jam was, like, achieving to prove hustle for my worthiness. But once you get – you're in, like, this – you're thinking about it in terms of, like, how can I blow my own mind? Right. How can I do something and achieve something that I never thought was possible before just because I had a mental block about it? Right. Right? It's the same thing for my client when she's like, oh, my God, it didn't even occur to me that I could think that my husband was being loving because he actually did bring me something to drink. Right. Right? And and it was like that flash of like, wait a minute, there's another way to think about this. Um, and once you begin to realize, like, oh, your thoughts are optional. Yeah. All your thoughts about yourself, your thoughts about your life, your thoughts about your husband, your thoughts about your kids, like, they're all optional. 
Thanks for listening to my conversation with Sasha Hines. For more on Sasha, head to drsashahines.com. That's D-R-S-A-S-H-A-H-E-I-N-Z. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. Are you plant-based vegetarian? What do you feel about red meat? Asks Christian. (laughs) Christian, I think I have been everything at one point in my life or the other, except vegan. I've actually, I've never been a vegan, but I've been plant-based. I've been macrobiotic. I've been paleo. I've been vegetarian. I've been a carnivore. I've been an omnivore. And I think now I try to be plant-based and seasonal, local, organic, but I'm also more open-minded probably right now than I've, than I've been in other phases in my life. I'm, I feel very, very curious about all food that's raised in a, an ethical and, uh, manner and sustainable manner. I'm not a big red meat person, but I'd, I don't really say no to anything these days. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.